Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, turn to the book of Judges. You're in Ruth. Turn back one page. I got to remind you of the setting of the book of Ruth. We talked about this last week, but we'll bring it back up again. What's the very last verse of the book of Judges? Judges 21, 25. In those days there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So they are living in a time of the Judges. And if you remember, there is no king. Ruth starts out. How does Ruth chapter 1 verse 1 start? In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the, ma- in the land, and a man of Bethlehem. You guys remember, what does Bethlehem mean? House of, bread. House of bread. Okay, so that is a little bit of an irony because house of bread, Bethlehem, there's a famine. So... Who takes his family to Moab? A man named Elimelech. What does Elimelech mean? This is a review. Some of you weren't here last week, so we're doing a quick review. What's Elimelech mean? My God is king. My God is king. Okay, so a guy who's named My God is king... In a time where there was no king, and there's a famine in the house of bread, Bethlehem, takes his family to Moab. And what do we find out about Moab? What's Moab? It's a pagan, dark place where he should have never taken his family out of the promised land to go to Moab. Nothing good happens in Moab. What happens when they get to Moab? He dies. He was there a while. Okay. Naomi is a widow. What does Naomi's name mean? You guys remember Naomi's name? Her name means pleasant. Remember that. So Naomi's name is pleasant. She's a widow. She has two sons named Little Death and Little Disease. Remember? Annihilation. So Maclon and Kilion. They they Mary, Ruth, and Orpah, those two little babies die. So Naomi is left a widow without sons in a pagan land, and she's been there for 10 years, and she, her whole life's been crushed. Okay? So we left on a cliffhanger last week in verse 5, where her entire world came crashing down. She's in Moab where she should never have been in the first place. It's a time where there is no king in Israel. Her husband has died. Her boys have died. All she's left with are her two pagan daughters-in-law. And she's not going to be pleasant much longer. Okay? So let's read Ruth chapter 1. If you guys remember, each... 
Let me remember to tell you guys the structure of the book of Ruth. How many chapters are there in Ruth? Four. Okay. So there's four scenes in this drama. Each of the four scenes has how many subplots? Three. So remember, there's four scenes, three subplots. Last week we saw scene one, or act one, scene one. Okay. Today we're going to look at the second two subplots of, of chapter one. Okay. So let's pick up in verse... 6, and let's see the rest of the story. I left you on a cliff, cliffhanger last week, okay? All right, so chapter 6, uh, let's, let's go through verse 18 to the very end. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No. We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. They lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave. You are to return from following you. For you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. This is scene two. Now, verse six, the first subplot leaves Naomi destitute. But in verse 6, things begin to change. She arises with Ruth and Orpah, and she begins to head back to Bethlehem because the famine's over. But from this one verse, we see some key insights. First of all, this marks the beginning of the return of Naomi. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return. The word return is very, very important in this chapter. It's the key thematic word. Return. I'm going to teach you a Hebrew word, okay? It's the Hebrew word shuv. It looks like shub, but it's shuv. It's the Hebrew word shuv. It means return. But it also carries with it significant theological meaning, I will leave you hanging on that until we get there in a moment. But the word means return. So think about it this way. Every time you see the like, so I will tell it to, tell it to you in Hebrew. She arose with her daughters-in-law to shuv, 
from the country of Moab. She's going to return. We also see in verse 6, remember this is called the invisible hand of grace. We see the invisible hand of God's grace working. Notice that in a foreign land of Moab, Naomi has heard about the end of the famine. Notice what it says there. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Now, the Bible doesn't tell how this message came to her. But what we see here is that somehow God in his sovereignty is orchestrating events so that Naomi would be at the right place at the right time to hear the news. Now, one thing you need to understand in the book of Ruth, people are always at the right place at the right time. Are those just clinky dinkies, as my mom would say growing up? Are those just coincidence? So um, Proverbs 25, 25, like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. She's got good news from a far country. She's in Moab. She's in pagan land. She's destitute. She's a widow. But, ah, she hears good news. What's the good news? Famine is over. Now, secondly, in that verse, notice words are very, very important. The Lord visited his people. Does anybody have a different translation in verse 6 besides visited? The storyteller gives us crucial details of God's intervention. He says the Lord visited. Does anybody else have a different word besides visited? The Lord had come to the aid. Had come to the aid. Had come to the aid. Had visited. And given them food. The Hebrew word there is pakad, visited. It's a strong Hebrew word that really means to assemble troops for battle. In other words, God has assembled all of his divine resources to supply Ruth with everything that she's going to need in order to go back. And so the Lord is showing kindness to Naomi. This is the time of the judges, remember, where they're being disobedient. But in this particular period of time, God is showing grace to the nation of Israel by lifting the famine and bringing bread back to the house of bread. So literally, God had given them bread. What does it say? The Lord had given them food, given them bread. So literally, Bethlehem, whose name means house of bread, is now living back to its name. Okay? But you also see a wordplay going on. And this is the one thing that's fun about Hebrew narratives. You don't get this in English, but there's wordplays. Like we call them puns, play on words in English. And that, that happens a lot. And remember what I said last week? This was meant to be told as a story, out loud. So the more you have words that rhyme, like we have nursery rhymes. How, how do you learn stories? Sometimes words rhyme or play off one another to help you remember. That's how they did it back then. There's also a wordplay going on here that the original audience would have noticed. The word visited. Again, I told you that word visited is the Hebrew word pakad. It means the Lord assembled troops for battle. But it's also a key word that would have triggered something in their minds. If you go back and read Genesis, Genesis 21, 1-2, the Lord, same Hebrew word, visited Sarah. And said, and the Lord did 
to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his age at the time when God had spoken to him. That's interesting. The Lord visited Sarah and she conceived and had a son. The Lord visited, she conceived, she had a son. Who else was a barren woman that didn't have a son? Hannah. 1 Samuel 2.21 Indeed the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters and the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So in the Old Testament the Lord quote unquote visited two barren women Sarah and Hannah and caused them to conceive and bear a child. The Lord visited his people. Now this is making us think for something here. The Lord visited. Is God going to visit Naomi with a child? She's childless, right? She's not barren, but she's childless. Is she going to have an heir? How is the visitation from God going to relate to childbearing? Because what's the whole issue with Naomi? I have no husband. I have no heirs. I have no children. I'm basically a barren woman. I have, I have no lineage. I have nobody left. The Lord visited these Old Testament ladies and they conceived and gave birth. The Lord visited his people. Hmm. Is this a foreshadowing that Naomi's going to have a child? But she's old, right? She can't bear children. She's past, what's the word called, menopause? Past childbearing age. So what's going on here? God's showing grace. Now, here's the problem. Was Naomi disobedient and wayward and sinful? The, the text doesn't come right out and tell you, but what should she have done when her husband died? Should she have ever left Jerusalem or Bethlehem? So she went, she left and went to Moab. She left the promised land. Remember what I said last week? No self-respecting Hebrew would leave the promised land, even if the grass was greener in Moab. So in a sense, the disobedient family, Naomi's the only one left, what's she doing? She's coming home. Okay. There is hope for the wayward and rebellious child of God. If you've wandered from home spiritually like Naomi, there's still hope. There's still a way home through God's grace. Who's responsible for this famine coming to an end? God. Who's responsible for Naomi hearing that the famine is gone? God. Who is orchestrating events so that Naomi gets back to Bethlehem? God. She probably would have stayed in Moab her entire life unless God had done this work to bring her back, to bring her back home. Okay? So we've got a lot of dialogue here. Remember what I said last week? Um, out of the 85 verses in Ruth, 56 of them are dialogue. So we have this long dialogue between her and her daughters-in-law. So in this first section of dialogue, 
Naomi expresses compassion for these girls. And what's interesting is that Naomi urges them to return to their mother's house. Normally, widows return to their father's house in that culture. What does she say there? So, verse 7. So she set out for the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to your mother's house. To your mother's house. Okay. Why does Naomi use the term mother's house? This expression, your mother's house, occurs only three times in the Old Testament. Here and in the Song of Solomon. In 3, 4, and 8, 2 of the Song of Solomon, it's a metaphor for the bedroom of a mother being a safe haven for a lover's rendezvous. It was the place where marriages were arranged. In other words, what's Naomi telling her two daughters? (laughs) You need to go back to Moab so you can remarry and find love. Go back to your mother's house. Go back and get an arranged marriage. Don't follow, don't follow me to Bethlehem. There's nothing there for you. you got, your girls are pagans. You're Moabites. You're still somewhat young. I'm a, bitter old, I'm a bitter old widow. You don't want to follow me to Bethlehem. You're still young. Go back and get some husbands. And Naomi uses a key expression in the book of Ruth. Return, shuv. Okay, so there's important words here. Shuv is one of them. Return. But here's another word. May the Lord deal, what does she say there? Kindly. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Deal kindly is the Hebrew word. You're going to spit on each other as you say it. Chesed. You have shown me hesed. You've shown me loving kindness. You've shown me tenderness. You've shown me compassion. Now, when it speaks of God's hesed, normally the Bible translates that loving kindness or or faithfulness or um, God's steadfast love, I think is the way the ESV translates it. The word really means unconditional, tenacious love that God shows in covenant fidelity to his people. And so Naomi's saying, listen, girls, you've been real kind to me. You stuck with me. You showed me kindness. I really, really appreciate it. I consider you like my own daughters. But really, you need to go back. Don't, don't follow me to, to Bethlehem. Now, in the second section of dialogue, Naomi becomes a little bit sarcastic. Okay? Look, verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back. What's the word there, guys? Turn back. Shuv. Return. Turn back. My daughters, go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would, th- would you therefore wait till they were grown? What is she saying? Even if some hot guy walks in tonight, and I get married, and we have kids, it's going to be another 20 years before he's old enough to be able to marry. So, I mean, she's being real facetious. It's, she's like, girls, it's not going to happen. 
you know, if you want to stay in the family and, and, and do it all the way you know, it's supposed to be done, it ain't going to happen. Just leave me, return, shuv, go back to Moab, don't follow me to Bethlehem, and get yourself your own husbands. She's too old to have husbands. Okay? Or too old to have, to have children. Now, in verse 13... Would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Bitter. Verse 13. Naomi uses an expression, exceedingly bitter. She laments. Her wounded heart, and she attributes it, attributes it to none other than the hand of the Lord. Let me teach you another Hebrew word. Mara. Bitter. Now, who does she blame for this? Read your Bible closely. Does she attribute this to fate? Bad luck. What does she say? What's happened to me? The death of my husband, the death of my little babies, being a widow in this foreign land, it is extremely bitter for me. And it's the hand of the Lord has done this. I'm not a product of bad luck. I'm not a product of bad circumstances. I'm not a victim. This is God's sovereignty at work against me. And it's made me very, very bitter. It's a frowning providence. Now notice the expression she uses there. The hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Why doesn't she just say the Lord's against me? Why does she say the hand of the Lord? Okay. The hand of the Lord is an expression used throughout the Old Testament to refer to God's mighty power. Remember, how did God he save the Israelites through His outstretched hand? So the hand represents God's power. Oftentimes in military victory, when God would rout the Philistines or God would rout the Egyptians, his hand was against them. So what's Naomi really saying here? I'm a bullseye, and God shot the arrow right at me. He has done this to me. God, you are responsible for all of my misery. Now, you need to, we need to stop, and you may take issue with Naomi and say, Now, wait a minute, Naomi. Are you truly sure that God is the source of these tragedies? Now, she's responsible, right? But who caused the famine? God. So, if God is not responsible, then who is responsible? Well, you may say, well, I know who's responsible. It's Satan. Satan did all this. Is Satan mentioned here? And even if Satan was, can Satan do anything that God allows him? I mean, God still has to allow or ordain Satan to do that. So those of you guys that are in my Tuesday morning men's study, you're like, oh, not again. Um, you guys, what do, we talk, what, what do we see almost every week in the book of Judges? You see it right here. Somehow, some way, the Bible teaches two truths. 
What are these two truths? Humans are responsible and free to act in the way they act. And yet at the same time, God is sovereign and accomplishes his plans. Don't ask me how it works, but it's happening right here. The Lord has done this. God is the one who's done this to me. Now, she may see this punishment. Notice how she owns up to it. Now, we may think that she's blaming God, and, that's, and she probably is. But she doesn't blame anybody else, does she? She doesn't say, man, those demons attacked me. What does she say? The hand of the Lord has come out against me. God, God must be mad at me. God is disciplining me. God, I'm an enemy of God. It's bitter. I don't like it. Okay? Do you see her reasoning here? Here's her reasoning, guys. If you read between the lines, what's she really saying here? She's saying, listen, I've sinned by even coming to Moab in the first place. And I'm dealing with the bitter punishment or discipline of the Father's hand against me. You don't want to be anywhere near me, girls. Because if you stay close to me, you're only going to get part of that discipline yourself. So in my misery, girls, my misery is from God, and you want to be as far away from me as you can. Run. Go back to Moab. Don't let my disobedience rub off on you so that you become bitter and something bad happens to you. You're still young. You still have time. Run. Go back to Moab. What does verse 14 say? They lifted up their voices and wept again. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. It's interesting. Orpah kisses Naomi. What does Ruth do? She debaks. Another Hebrew word, okay? I'm giving you guys a lot of Hebrew words. She clings. She clings. It, it's a very strong word in the Hebrew language. Ruth, the book of Ruth has some strong Hebrew words. I mean, I'm, I'm giving you guys a lot of... Not that you're going to remember these. Okay, so we've got Davak, cling. We've got Mara, bitter. We've got Shuv, return. And we've got Chesed, steadfast love. I mean, these are like key words that jump out that, that for a Hebrew audience that's listening to this for the very first time, these words are going to be strong. So this word Davak means to, to stick like glue. It show firm loyalty. As a matter of fact, you know the first time this word shows up? Turn in your Bibles real quick to Genesis. I'll show you the first place this word shows up. It's the very beginning of the Bible, by the way. So if you want to go to Genesis 2.24, Genesis 2.24, the word davak, Cling, stick like glue, cleave. So in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and he shall davak, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So this word is a strong word that's even used of the marriage covenant of what happens when a husband and wife cling to each other and become one flesh. This, this 
loyalty, this um, commitment, this sticking like glue. Um, and so even in the greatest of human relationships of a marriage, there's this devocking, I guess if you call it, that happens. And Ruth is saying, I am not going to go back to Moab. Naomi, I'm going to commit myself to you. I'm going to cling to you. And what it really means is that Ruth is willing to abandon her Moabite roots and her culture and her homeland to stay connected in loyalty to her mother-in-law. Think about that for a moment. Did Ruth know anything that was going to await her in Bethlehem? What did Ruth know in her whole life? I'm a Moabitess. I have no idea what holds me or what awaits me in Bethlehem. This is scary. My whole life has been in Moab, but I am not going to stay here. I'm going to devoc. I'm going to cling. I'm going to commit myself to Naomi out of loyalty to her. Now that shows us something about Ruth's character from the very beginning here. What does Orpah do? You know what Orpah's name means? Back of the neck. Obstinate one. What does she do? She turns her back. Look at verse 15. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people, to her gods. Shuv after your sister-in-law. Return. She's gone back. So what's happening? You, you picture this in your mind? Naomi's clinging. I mean, Ruth is clinging to Naomi. Where's Orpah? I'm heading home. I'm going back to Moab. What do you see? Back of her neck. That's what her name means. We never see Orpah again. We see the back of her neck. She fades off into history. She doesn't follow Naomi. We never hear from her again. She rides off into the sunset. Back to, Mo back to her gods. Uh-oh. I'm having some technical difficulties here tonight. Let's try this. Am I there? Yes, I'm there. Okay. So, verse 16 and 17, we have some of the most famous words in all of Ruth. And oftentimes people will actually use this as part of their wedding vows at times too, just because of the, the nature. Let me just stop and give a little apologetic here because this is really sick with the way some people view this. Okay, so this is not in your notes. But because of the highly sexualized, homosexualized culture we live in today, there are actually some people that say, basically, this is a lesbian relationship between Naomi and Ruth. That when she clings to her and you have this marriage language, this is, you know, Ruth's a lesbian, Naomi's a lesbian, and they, they, they have lesbian love for each other. Okay? That's what some people will say. Um, I don't know how you read that into the text, especially since she gets married to a man, Boaz. But... That, that, that is not in the text. But today, and, and people make the same argument for David and Jonathan. David and Jonathan were gay lovers because they were strong friendship. Ruth and Naomi were gay lovers because, I mean, you have to have a predisposed bias towards a homosexual viewpoint to even read that into the text. Okay, so The only reason I bring that up is because some people make that argument. Okay, that's not what's going on here, okay? So, just side note. Okay. But notice what she says here. What does she say in verse um, 16 and 17? 
Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to shuv, to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be buried. May the Lord, capital O-L-O-R-D, notice that, attention to that detail. What is L-O-R-D, all caps? It's Yahweh. Do to me and more also, if anything but death, parts me from you. These are the first words off the lips of Ruth in the story. And what are the first words we hear from Ruth? I'm going to go with you, Naomi. And I'm going to lodge with you. Now, notice, the lodge doesn't mean they're going to spend one night at the Howard Johnson and you know, on the way back from Moab to Bethlehem. Hey, we're going to spend, you know. No, it means that the language that Ruth is saying to Naomi here is that I'm committing, Ruth is committing herself to live with Naomi permanently. And not only that, she's going to adopt the people of God. Your people shall be my people. What's she doing? In that moment, she's renouncing her ethnic roots as a Moabitess and is adopting the national faith of Naomi to be numbered among the Israelites. What is she saying? I am no longer a Moabitess. I am going to be an Israelite. I'm taking upon your people. I'm taking upon your God. And notice that she actually uses the word Lord. She invokes the covenant name of Yahweh, the Lord. The Lord will punish me to death if I don't stay faithful to you, Naomi. May the Lord do to me and more, if anything else but death parts me from you. Naomi, if I don't follow through with this, if I don't follow you back, if I don't abandon my Moabite roots, if I don't come and commit myself to you and to your people and to your God, may your Lord, the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, may, may, may he kill me if I don't keep my promise. Now, think about this. Who's saying these words? A pagan Moabites who's never stepped foot in Israel. This was unheard of in the history of the Old Testament. <coughs> Unparalleled her devotion to both Naomi, her devotion to the Israelites, and her devotion to the Lord as a pagan. Now, there were some foreigners who gave lip service to Israel's God. They showed some respect. But Ruth is actually confessing loyalty and faith in the Lord. In other words, this is her conversion experience. Now, I'm going to tip my hand here and give you some juicy information, okay? You want some juicy information? (laughs) There's only one other pagan woman... In the Old Testament, do you want to know who the other person in the Old Testament who was a foreigner, who confessed faith in the Lord was, who was a pagan woman? Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute from Jericho. And you go back and you read the book of Joshua and the spies come to her and say, we're spying out the land. What's her confession? In Joshua 2.11... Rahab, it says, as soon as we heard it, our hearts heard about the crossing of the Red Sea, all the amazing things that the Lord had done. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's a confession of faith from a pagan woman. Pagan, Jericho, prostitute, 
out of her mouth says what? The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and the earth, above, and the earth below. That's a stronger confession of faith than most Christians give today. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, heaven and earth. He, he's Lord of all. She was a prostitute. She was pagan. Here's another tidbit of information that will just excite you. We're going to get to this next week, but do you know who Boaz's mother was? It's Rahab the prostitute. See how it all comes together? A pagan prostitute confesses faith in the Lord and bears a son. We don't know how she bears that son who just happens to show up and we'll look at this next week as Boaz. Ruth here, she's not a prostitute, but she's a pagan. She's a Moabitess. She's not from Jericho. She's from Moab. She confesses faith in the Lord, the God of Israel, as a pagan outsider. Now, This is not in your notes, but turn to Matthew chapter 1 for a moment. And you may say, you know what? I do not like genealogies because so-and-so begat so-and-so and all these weird names. So-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, and so-and-so lived 120. Okay, so Matthew's gospel starts out with the genealogy. And I want you to... When you, if you have a pen, if you're using a traditional Bible, if you use an electronic Bible, I don't know how you highlight in your electronic Bibles, but you figure that out. Um, I'm going to stop and emphasize some things here, okay? This is the, right, so Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Whose genealogy are we talking about? Jesus. What's a genealogy? His lineage, his birth. You trace, trace his birth back, his family tree. Okay, so verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Circle Tamar. It's the first woman that shows up in the genealogy of Jesus, Tamar. You guys remember the story of Tamar? She was an Egyptian prostitute that Judah had sex with. That doesn't sound like it should be in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay, let's keep going. Go down to verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. Circle Rahab. Rahab's in the genealogy of Jesus. She's a Canaanite prostitute. That doesn't sound right, to have a prostitute in the genealogy of Jesus. These are the first two women, the only two women we've heard of so far. The rest are all men. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Ruth, third woman listed in the genealogy. Now, Ruth was not a prostitute, but she was an outsider. She was a pagan. She was a Moabite. Doesn't seem like she would be in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay. Verse 6, And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who was the wife of Uriah? Bathsheba. Now, she wasn't a prostitute, but she was raped by her. Not raped, but she was... <laughs> David committed adultery with her. Didn't seem like she should be in the genealogy of Jesus. And then you go down to verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. 
of whom Jesus was born, who's called Christ. There are five women in the genealogy of Jesus, all with very interesting things surrounding their birth or their sexuality. You got a Canaan paganite in Rahab, you got a prostitute in Tamar, you got a Moabitess in Ruth, you got somebody who was sexually exploited in Bathsheba, and you have a virgin that was accused of having sex with Joseph before marriage that gave birth to Jesus. And we'll come back to this, but why in the world would this be in the genealogy of Jesus? What does it show you? God loves to save outside lost people that are pagan Moabites, pagan Canaanites. And that's just the way God loves to do things. It's scandalous to think about these women being in the genealogy of Jesus. Okay? So, this is Ruth's conversion. This is her profession of faith. This is her salvation experience, if you will. What's she doing here? She was willing to take on an uncertain future, living with a bitter widow in a land that would be foreign to her, where she would enjoy hardly any legal rights, and given that she was a Moabitess, she would be the object of scorn, ridicule, and prejudice. What did I say last week is the, the reputation of Moabite women in Israel's mind? Moabite women in Israel's mind are always sexually bad. Stay away from the Moabites. They, they, they were seductresses. So even the fact that Ruth is going to step foot into Bethlehem as a Moabitess, that's strike one against her. They're automatically going to think, well, she's a Moabite. Yes. In our vernacular, pardon the French, but they'd say, she's, you know, she's a hoe. Or she's, uh, I don't know what else you'd say. She's, I don't know what else you'd say. She's a loose woman. She's, um... I don't know what people say these days. She's a player. I don't know. She's a skank. She's sketchy. Whatever words you want to use in your vernacular, that's what she's walking into already. But what does she do? She left all to follow Israel's God. Remember the key word in this chapter. What's the key word in this chapter? How many times is it used? Return, 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 return. Shuv, 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 shuv. Do you guys know what that word also means in Hebrew? It means to repent. To repent. So in a sense, what's she doing? In her turning away from Moab in turning toward faith in the God of Israel, what is Ruth doing? She's shuving, okay? She's repenting. She's repenting of being a Moabitess, repenting of being a pagan. She's leaving behind everything she knows in a life of paganism to embrace a life in Israel under the Lord. Does not Jesus call us to do the same thing? What is Matthew 10, 37-39? Jesus says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is that not what Ruth does? She leaves everything to follow Naomi. And more importantly, Naomi's God in Israel. Luke 9, 57 through 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Talking to Jesus. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. What does Ruth do? She puts her hand to the plow and never looks back. She turns. Now you do see the back of the neck of Ruth, but what is her, the back of her neck? She turns her back on Moab. What does Moab represent? Everything about her life, her paganism, her security, where she found her identity. She turns her back on all of that in order to shove or to repent or to turn or to follow Naomi into the unknown, following the Lord, L-O-R-D, all caps, Yahweh, in faith to go back to Bethlehem, not knowing what would await her. That is true saving faith. That's repentance that you see illustrated in the Old Testament with Ruth. That's why in the book of Acts, the Gentiles, Acts eleven eighteen, when they had heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Has Ruth repented? And is it going to lead to life? We'll have to find out. But yes, Ruth gives the strongest confession of faith in the Old Testament of a pagan Gentile. This is the strongest example of conversion and repentance in the Old Testament. Read it again. Just read the words again. Listen to what she's saying. Verse 16. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge... I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. What's she saying there? I'm no longer going to be a Moabite. Yes, I'm going to be an Israelite. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. I'm abandoning my pagan gods. I'm abandoning all my, my, my pagan idolatry in, in Moab. I'm adopting your God. I'm confessing faith in your God. And where you die, I'm going to die. And where they bury you, I'm going to be buried, which is a big deal back in Israel. You want to be buried in your homeland. I'm not going to be buried in Moab. There's nothing for me in Moab. I'm going to be buried with you in Bethlehem. And she says, May the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, Yahweh, the God of Israel, do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. She's so strong about this. She's like, listen, the only thing that's going to stop me from doing this is if I die. And I'm, I'm placing all of my trust, all of my hope, all of my future, everything I am, in your Lord, Naomi. And I don't know anything about what awaits me at Bethlehem. But one thing I do know, I'm never going back to Moab. Orpah, back of the neck, she went back. I'm not going back to pagan idolatry. I'm following you and your Lord. 
Remember the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15? Naomi is the prodigal coming home. She spent time out in no man's land in Moab doing her thing, but now she's going to come home. Luke 15, 17 through 19. The young man, when he came to himself, said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with my hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. The prodigal came home. This is not in your notes, but Sinclair Ferguson, who's a Scottish preacher and written a lot of good commentaries, he said this, The Lord plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus the Lord in Moab. Which one do you want? The Lord plus nothing in Bethlehem or everything minus the Lord in Moab. You can live in Moab and have everything you want, but no Lord. Or you can go to Bethlehem and not know what awaits you, but have the Lord. Which one do you want? You want to go wherever you have the Lord. <laughs> okay. What did Orpah do? What did obstinate back of the neck do? She chose the path of least resistance and went back home. While Ruth forsook everything and jumped out in faith and embraced the God of Israel, knowing full well that her entire future was in God's hands. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, Paul says, They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living God. That's repentance. You turn from your idolatry to serve the living God. That's what Ruth has done. She's turned from being a Moabitess in paganism to embrace the living God of Israel, the Lord. Okay? So, subplot one. They leave and go to Moab, and tragedy strikes. Subplot two, the Lord graciously ends the famine, and the prodigals return. Now we get to subplot three, where they actually arrive back in Bethlehem. They actually come back to House of Bread. And it's been a while. So let's read the last, the last scene here in this first act, verses 19 through 22. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Don't call me Naomi. Don't you dare call me Naomi. I'm not Naomi. What's my name? Mara. What does Naomi mean? Pleasant. I'm not pleasant. I'm not lovely. Life's not good. I'm not living up to... Things aren't rosy in my world. Don't you dare call me by my given name, pleasant, lovely, Naomi. Call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Bitter. I am no longer pleasant. I'm going to change my name to 
bitter. Bitter. Because the Almighty, El Shaddai, in the Hebrew there, El Shaddai, the Almighty, God the Almighty, what has He done? He's dealt with me. Now, this Marah language comes from an earlier time in Israel's history. It was at Marah in the wilderness on the way out of Egypt that the children of Israel complained against the Lord because they couldn't drink the water. Remember that? We have no water to drink. Bitter, bitter, bitter. Marah, marah, marah. They complained. Bitterness. We're bitter. Exodus 15, 23-24. When they came to Marah, bitter, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. So if you were to say that in Hebrew, when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was Marah. Therefore, it was named Marah. Bitter, 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 bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses. They became bitter against Moses. What shall we drink? They got angry. They got bitter. <clears throat> they grumbled against Moses. They were bitter. And again, notice Naomi's theology. She doesn't chalk it up to fate, some distant force at work. She knows who's responsible for this. She lays it squarely on the shoulders of God Almighty. What does she say? I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. What does it mean she went away full? I had a husband and two sons. They died. And now I'm empty. And who's responsible? The Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? I lay everything at the, at the, at the hand of Almighty El Shaddai has done this for me. And I'm bitter about it. I'm mad about it. Now, at this point, the surgeon's knife is digging deep into her and she knows it's the invisible hand of God. Now, here's the issue. Does God answer Naomi? Do you hear God say, you deserve it? Do you hear God say, it's your just punishment? Do you hear God show up in a whirlwind like he did with Job and said, brace yourself like a man, let me tell you what it's really like. Does God ever explain himself to Naomi? He's silent, but he's on his throne. Here's the thing. God doesn't need to explain or defend himself. He just needs to be El Shaddai. And when God is El Shaddai, when he is almighty, we rest in the security of the sovereign God. We may not understand why he does what he does. We may not understand why God ordains what he ordains. We might not understand why we go through what we go through. We may become bitter. But what's the one thing that you can never question? Is God not in control? Is God somehow off his throne? Did this catch God by surprise? Now this is, this is Naomi being honest, right? I mean, you'd be, I'm not faulting Naomi here at all. This is a natural human reaction. If you lost everything, and you come coming back, okay, I'm fine, like, tail tucked between your knee or whatever, she comes back to Bethlehem, 
She's bitter. All of her friends comes. Hey, it's Naomi. Pleasant showing up. Do not dare call me pleasant. I'm bitter. God's done this to me. Leave me alone. I want to just go wallow in my bitterness. You can understand where she's coming from, right? It's a normal human reaction. But at the same time, who has sovereignly orchestrated her to be able to come back in the first place? God. And in the process, what's happened to her daughter-in-law? She's quote-unquote become a... I mean, she's been converted. She's repented. So Naomi, get your head out of the wherever your head is and look at what God's doing in the midst of your pain. Okay? The Heidelberg Catechism... Oh, not only that, but she uses the courtroom imagery of God. The Lord has testified against her. She's portraying herself as a defendant in court where she, where, who's been found guilty and is experiencing the punishment of crime and God's in control of all this. The Heidelberg Catechism gives a great definition of providence. God is providentially orchestrating things. We may not know why, but the, the Heidelberg Catechism says, The Almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by His hand, He upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come, not by chance, but by His fatherly hand. Everything happens because God moves in a mysterious way. Mysterious being the operating word. Now what happened to Job when everything was taken away from him? Not as bad as Naomi. I mean, Naomi still has her life. She's not sitting in a you know, pile of ashes with boils. You know, and all of, his, all of her kids have died. Or, I mean, her two sons have. Job 2, 9 through 10, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall not we receive evil? I think Naomi and Job have the same theology. I don't understand it, God. I'm going to sit here and scratch my head as to why this is happening. I'm bitter. I'm in pain. I'm suffering. But one thing I do know is you're sovereign. And somehow this is happening to me because it's part of your sovereign plan. And I have two choices. I can be bitter and curse you and just kill myself. Or I can accept it as your sovereign plan and learn how to trust you through it. Okay? So she's complaining. But here's the amazing thing. And maybe you haven't thought about this. The amazing thing about suffering at the hands of God, you, is that He may be using it to bring about the conversion and regeneration of sinners around you. You ever thought about that? Why am I suffering? Why is this happening to me? Could it be that God's using your suffering as a way to show the testimony to others around you how you deal with suffering and they get saved because they see you and how you handle it? There's people all... There are Moabitesses, Moabites living around us all the time, are there not? There are Ruth, there are pagan Ruths living around us all the time that are looking at us and how we respond. They're looking at us closely. How do you respond to adversity? How do you respond to suffering? How are you going to respond? And at this point, we're probably not even thinking about that. All we're thinking about is ourselves. Here's the issue with Naomi. She wasn't a very good witness of being set apart as God's people. 
Now, there was really no distinctive holiness about her. She left the promised land for the greener grass of Moab and a way to fix things in her own life. She wasn't the best representative to witness to Ruth and tell her about the gospel. Okay? So in the midst of her complaining, she wasn't even thinking about, hey, i got a pagan woman here that's looking at how I'm complaining. I may need to be a better witness. But God will sometimes take away things in your life that have become precious to you if they are enabling you to continue in a life of sin and disobedience. He may take away things in your life so that your soul's sufficiency is in Him and His grace and His provision. And while He does this, others are watching your life very, very closely. Remember the children of Israel when they complained in the wilderness? Bitter. They went to bitter. The water was bitter. What did God do to the water? Did it remain bitter? Exodus 15, 26-27. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments, and keep all His statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then he came to Elam, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is right on the tales of Marah. Marah was not only a place of complaining and bitterness, but it was where the place God took them to show them amazing grace as a healer. Refreshing. So... In the midst of Naomi's bitterness, God is going to be orchestrating things with his invisible hand to bring her refreshing. She doesn't know that yet, and we're not there yet, but God's still on his throne. Think about Jesus for a moment. Who left his father's house to come live with us even to the point of death against whom the Almighty's hand truly went out in bitter judgment, even though he was innocent? Jesus is our Emmanuel. He's God with us. So if there's anybody that experienced bitterness in the hand of God, it was Christ when he died on the cross. And it wasn't his sin, it was ours. We're all like Naomi. We've all gone astray looking for bread that does not satisfy in the place of Moab. And yet God has not cut us off in His wrath and anger, but in His grace has poured out His wrath and anger on Jesus in our place so that we might be saved. Before our salvation, we are pagan outsiders who have no bread, but through Christ we're invited to the banquet table to feast on bread that will always satisfy. What did Jesus say? Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Where are they at? Bethlehem. What does Bethlehem mean? House of bread. Act 1 ends with a very good coincidence. What does it say? And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, so what? It just so happens 
that God has orchestrated events for them to come back to Bethlehem at the time that it was most productive. The famine has lifted. God is pouring out His blessing on the people. Bethlehem is going to be finally the house of bread. So how does chapter 1 begin? Famine. Moab. Chapter 1 begins with famine in the house of bread, Naomi and her family in Moab. How does chapter 1 end? The famine is lifted. It's the harvest time. They're back in Bethlehem and Naomi's back. And it just so happens that it's at harvest time. Which is going to be very, very important for next week. So we'll leave you hanging to come back next week to find out what happens at the barley harvest. Any thoughts or comments? We got done pretty early tonight. Any thoughts or comments or questions about this passage of Scripture tonight in Ruth chapter 1? Yes, Glenn. One thing you shouldn't be too hard on Naomi because somehow her Yeah, that's a good point. Somehow, Naomi knew to make that confession of faith about the God of Israel. So in some ways, the text doesn't tell us, Naomi had probably testified about who the God of Israel was. Bob? In some ways, I, I've got a comment. I, I feel that Ruth, at, at certain points, has more faith than Naomi. Yes. Because uh, uh, here it says, do not... Do I still have sons in my room that they may become my husbands? So she's almost saying what's going to happen, that she's never going to marry again. Mm-hmm. But we know with God all things are possible. So she's got this bad attitude, to say the least. Yeah. And, and that's maybe kind of a lack of faith in, in some ways, that things can change with God. And, and she's not really turning towards God. It's not showing that anymore. The only thing that we see in the text is that she's bitter. I guess she is turning towards God by returning. Yeah, she's she's coming back home. She's coming back home bitter. And it's reality. I mean, she's coming back home bitter. Well, when you experience a death of loved ones, whether or not, I mean, even as a Christian, death, you know, even when you know that, you know, they're in a better place, you still have a hole. Sure. You know, and so I don't think she is bitter towards God necessarily. You know, she realizes that he's dealt her this hand at this particular time. It doesn't mean she's enjoying it. Sure. So I think she's she is bitter <laughs> in that, but you know, she w- had enough faith, I think, that that both of her daughters in law were ready to be with her. You know, so she must have been an awesome mother-in-law, because not a whole lot of daughters-in-law want to go with their mother-in-law. And they, that's just the reality. Okay? And so the fact that both of them want, really were willing to go with her, and she says, no, don't do it. And so Orpha, you know, doesn't say, well, okay, <laughs> I was looking for an excuse. She cries yeah. and kisses her. So yeah. it, it is with sadness, really, that Orpha even leaves, but she sees the judgment. But... <coughs> 
Ruth has looked at her and knows there's something different about Naomi. There's something different <coughs> about these people from Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. I I want that. Yeah. That's what's different. And so, um, I I don't think that Naomi was having a lack of faith, you know, or she would have just stayed in Moab. She'd been yeah. there for years, probably yeah. had some friends, yeah. you know. But <coughs> she's going back, and but she is very sad. Yeah, yeah. And it, and, and we have. Were you gonna say something? No, go ahead. To add on to what she was saying, and you know, yeah, it was kind of going against God that she left Bethlehem and went to Moab. But then again, it's kind of a good thing because then when she goes back, she's bringing Ruth with her. Mm -hmm. So maybe it was both not good, but also you know really good because now mm -hmm. Ruth is mm -hmm. changing her mm -hmm. ways. There's something that we that the text does not, and I think Glenn brought this up. There's something the text does not tell us, but there's something that Ruth knew. For her to make that confession in verses 16 and 17, your people will be my people, your God, my God. She had to know something about the God that she was confessing. She had to know something about Naomi's family, the Bethlehemites, Israel. Somehow she had to know that. And so that probably came from Naomi telling, hey, one thing we have to understand about anything in the Bible that you read, okay, this is the frustrating thing about sometimes about reading the Bible, is that the narrators are very selective in what they choose to give you. In other words, they're not going to give you the entire story and all the dialogue and all the behind the scenes. They're going to give you exactly what the Holy Spirit wanted you to get, four chapters, compact. So there's some stuff that we have to just kind of guess and say, obviously, the Bible here doesn't tell us how Ruth knew about the God of Israel, but that she did know enough to make that confession of faith. We have to fill in the, the gaps and say, okay, probably our best guess is that Naomi and Elimelech, while he was still alive, but probably Naomi shared with Ruth what it meant to be an Israelite, who God was, why he was the Lord. I like how someone pointed out, you know, her husband, like, yeah. It, it was his choice to leave. Yeah, and last week we talked a little bit about that last week. He just he just died. We don't know how he died, why he died. The Bible just says he up and died. And, and the thing I brought up last week was what it could have been judgment. It could have been God's judgment on him. And, and back in that culture, really, Naomi had no choice. She had to go with her husband. Um, and and especially the choices of the husbands affect the entire family for better or worse, whatever the, the spiritual leader of the family decides to do, it affects the entire family. And, and as really the, the main culprit in this thing is Elimelech when it starts back at the very beginning. My God is king is not acting like my God is king and takes his family and packs them up to Moab. He should have stayed in the house of Bethlehem with the Lord as opposed to going to Moab where the grass was greener. And he took his family with him. And they suffered the consequences of that. Even though he... From from Naomi's point of view, though, I mean, just to your point, that's that's very true. You know, she did say uh, that that bitterness was a very real thing, even though knowing it was it was God's judgment or or God's will. Uh, yet yet she has that that bitterness, and so and that's exactly what she's saying when she gets back to Bethlehem, is that that's that's not who I am anymore. You know, mm -hmm. that's. That's not my name. That's not. That's not who I am. I'm mm -hmm. not. 
Mm -hmm. Not pleasant. It's not mm -hmm. pleasant anymore. Mm -hmm. I, this is this is who I am. Yeah. You know, this is what's happened to me. Mm -hmm. um, recognizing it, you know. I mean, it's, and here's something, guys, that the book of Ruth really shows us. We'll talk about this as we go on, but in the book of Ruth, there are no blinding lights. There are no audible voices from heavens. There's no miraculous apparitions. Like in the book of Judges where, you know, Samson, we, you know, he kills a thousand guys with a jawbone. And, I mean, there's none of this. It is basically normal everyday life. But God is active all over the place. He's just active with his invisible hand behind the scenes. And isn't that normally how life is anyway? I mean, very rarely are we going to see the blinding lights, the big... I mean, we're just going to go through normal everyday life, but we have the confidence that as we live life, God is sovereignly in control. We may not see how he works, but he's working. And we experience all the emotions of life, bitterness, joy, happiness, fear. But one thing we need to realize is even though we're going through this, God is sovereign, he's with us, he will take us through it, and we can trust Him, um, even though we can't see exactly how He's working it all out. And that's really what you see in the book of Ruth, is what appear to be quote-unquote coincidences are not really coincidences, God setting things up. And in the normal everyday life, it's really, you know, it's really the way we operate. Not most of us are going to have a parting of the Red Sea experience or a burning bush or a blinding light. You're just going to have a normal, everyday, boring life. I hate to say that. But God's still sovereign and in control, working things out for his good. You're good. Yes, Glenn. I'm sure, Ruth, just as we do, when hindsight took effect, she realized that God had worked in her life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It happens to us, too. Yeah. And, guys, I'm not giving you the whole story tonight. We're looking at this scene by scene to kind of keep the drama. I mean, if you read the whole book of Ruth, you get the whole picture. You, you know what happens. But we're reading it as an unfolding drama where you're like, I'm the edge of your seat. What's going to happen next? Well, you can read the next three chapters and find out what happens. But we're, we're reading it kind of getting ourselves in the story of how it would be unfolding and, you know, with the, with the um, plot twists and the, what you call it, the, the drama. So. All right, anything else tonight? Yes, Jerry. Um, when we were in the... Uh Genealogy. Genealogy. Thank you. It uh, reminded me of the story I heard where this missionary and his wife were in a someplace like New Guinea. They'd been there five years and hadn't saved anybody yet, so they were on their way home. The night before, all of the men were gathered around the bonfire like they always did, and he decided, well, they only. The only thing I haven't done now is read Matthew. So he started in with Matthew 1 and read the whole thing, genealogy, and he got to the end and the head man of the tribe said, can you read that again? He read it again and he said, I want you to read it again, but my wife has to hear it also. The men got up, brought their wives and they read it and they saved a whole bunch of people just because of the genealogy. They were, they were into genealogy, and Jesus had a genealogy, and that's what saved them. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm going to preach on Sunday morning, guys, for Easter. So when you come on Easter, we're preaching Matthew 1. It's going to be... No, I'm just joking. <laughs> it's going to be... Yeah, Easter Sunday is going to be the genealogy of Jesus. 
And everybody's be like, what's he doing? So-and-so, we got so-and-so. Bring your friends. <laughs> no, but that's, that's cool. That that, I mean, that God used the genealogy in that particular case with that tribe right. sovereignly because that's what they needed to hear at that moment, which shows you the sufficiency of Scripture that God can use anything to bring about salvation um, in any part of his word. Um, and we at least, least expect it to happen. So. And, and before that, I always wondered, why is that in there? But yeah. What difference yeah. does it make? Now I you know. a lot of difference yeah. for some people. Yep, yeah. now you know. All right. All right, well, let's pray, guys and gals. Father, thank you for this story, true story, this historical event. That, and, um, Lord, we may um, at times be bitter or questioning or, or experience deep loss. But, Lord, help us to remember that you are the one that shows steadfast love. You are the one that gives us kindness, and you are sovereign. And, Lord, your kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. And, Lord, so I pray that we would always be repenting. We'd always be turning to you. We'd be turning from our idols. We'd never want to go back to Moab, whatever that would be in our lives. But we'd be going towards you, Jesus. And so, Lord, um, help us this week to just keep that in mind. And Lord, thank you for your grace, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.